you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be taking a look at uh, lots of different places. We had Dr. Jay LaRue with us last week. Dr. Jay is an overseer in our culture, a friend of the house, been with us uh, since our beginning. Dr. Jay talked about this thing called glory, and he really kind of launched glory as, as a topic and maybe a promise to say there's a promise of the glory of God to rest on the church. I want to take some time maybe for the next two or three weeks, to sit on this idea, investigate it a little bit more. When we refer to the glory of God, sometimes we interchange words like the glory of God, the presence of God. I want to bring some definition to it for us as a family. When we refer to the glory of God, what we're talking about is the presence of God being made manifest or aware to our senses, being made tangible, being an easier way to understand it. So what there is is a weight and an atmospheric nature to how God will make his presence known. This is what the scriptures teach. So we could say it this way, that the glory of God is the supernatural atmosphere he lives in. I always picture it this way, that there are times where the Lord will will, will settle into a space. And my concern for why I'm teaching this is I think in our day and in our time, we've lost track of the reality of the presence of God. We've almost viewed it as a charismatic pursuit. My goal this morning is to very clearly define for us, it is not a charismatic pursuit, it's actually a biblical reality. Man, that's quiet when that one, yeah. So there's a weight, there's an atmospheric nature to it. Maybe it's, we could say it this way, that the glory of God really is referring to how he expresses his nearness. How many have ever been in a worship gathering where there's something other and you don't really know what it is, but you're like, I can feel it. Just this sense. Some of us get super weirded out by that. We're like, I don't know what that is. Others, maybe like you were like me, where when I first got around the presence of God, I was like, I don't know what it is, but I like it. I want to spend some time looking at what the scriptures say about this concept. In the Hebrew, the word for glory is kavod, and it means awe, wonder, weight, or substance. It's almost easier to understand how it was used if we look at the way that word was used outside of the Old Testament. Outside of the Old Testament, kavod was used to describe the process of dropping gold onto a scale and the scale sinking. And so kavod was a measurement where they'd be like, kavod, like it, it had a lot of value to it. And so they took this idea and they superimposed it to describe God. When he enters a room, there's a weightiness Here's what I want us to see. There is something tangible and atmospheric that they were talking about. They weren't talking about an existential idea that was mental. And in our culture, so often we want to talk about the presence of God from a mental point of view. It's just an idea, yet we believe God's presence is all around. The Hebrew culture here is talking about something that is actually tangible, touchable, knowable, physical in the room. We started Vintage about three years into our journey. Anybody had a dream before that was like so significant it kind of shapes you and marks you? So I'm, really, nobody? You're like, nope, I just dream about Fruit Loops. <laughs> I don't dream a lot. I had a dream and in this dream, I'm in a, a large room. It's dark, I can't see the walls or anything. But there's this overwhelming sense of the presence of God in the dream, and I could not shake it. I'm standing, I, I felt like it was connected to church because I was in my church clothes. And, and so in this dream, I'm just, I'm like literally almost screaming, glory, glory, 
glory. And then it becomes this cry, send your glory, God. And in the dream, I'm just sobbing. And I have no idea what's going on. I wake up the next morning. My pillowcase is completely wet. I have like tears down in my ears. Like, and I realized that something had happened. How many know that God is not just the God of our waking, he's actually the God of our sleeping. And scripturally, there are men that actually made covenant with God in their sleep. Nobody knew that? Which tells me, just a sidebar, pay attention to what you're thinking about before you go to bed. I always think it's important to prepare ourselves to connect with God in our sleep. Just a free thought. And so I wake up and I'm, I'm a little unnerved, if I'm honest. I couldn't figure out what was going on. It shook me. That's the only way I know how to explain it. I grab my cup of coffee, I sit down with the Lord, and I'm like, what was that? And he said, I've released a cry into your heart for this church. I'm like, okay. From that moment on, three years into our journey, this concept of contending for, believing for, longing for the glory of God became deeply part of me. Six months later, we had leased this building because uh, we were doing portable church, and I liked portable church because the business guy in me, portable church was cheap, and it was awesome, and it's a great way to build community, having lots of places for people to help, but the board came alongside of me, and they're like, hey, we know that you love portable church because it's cheap. We think you're wrong. We think we need a building, and so we, we signed a lease on this building, and um, it got tied up in red tape with the city, so for like six months, the building just sat idle. We couldn't fix it. We couldn't change it. There was, you know... It used to be a call center, so it just was very call center-ish inside of here. It had, you know, drop tile ceilings and gray carpet. And so I would come in a couple nights a week and just pace in the place and pray and just ask the Lord, what do you want to do? What are you doing? Because I was terrified, if I'm honest. I'm like, we just signed a lease. It's expensive to lease property in Fort Collins. This seems like a super dumb idea. I was totally counting on my board to tell me no, that I had missed you. And I'm hanging out, and I'm praying, and I'm, and I'm reading through the book of Ezra. And I'm reading through Nehemiah, and these two books for, for these weeks while I'm in here pacing and praying. And there was a night where this statement jumps off the page at me, rebuild the altar. Anybody ever had that where you read your Bible and something just jumps off the page at you? And so for me, rebuild the altar didn't seem like that. It was just like, that's a weird phrase. That's not a phrase that you jump off and go, I know what to do with that. I'm like, we don't live in the temple anymore. We don't live with altars. You know, it's different. So I spent the next two or three months just asking the Lord, like, what in the world does this mean? I could tell it was for us as a culture. It hit me at that place in my spirit. Oh my like, God's, God's speaking in this, but I just don't know what he's saying. One morning I was praying, the Holy Spirit just said, why don't you just consider what it means? I'm like, thanks, that helps. <laughs> so I took a step back. Instead of trying to synthesize something, I just asked, what is the altar? If we think about it from a common sense point of view, the altar was a geographic location where people knew they could access the presence of God. So there were, it was a, an actual known place where they knew that they could have access to him. So I prayed into that. Felt like the Lord was like, yeah, that's probably the right idea. And from that moment on in our journey, I realized that the Lord was doing something. See, because prior to that, I would pray for sign and wonder for healing, ask the Lord to release stuff in our gatherings. And if I'm honest and I'm being 100% transparent, the reason I was crying out for it is I wanted the rest of the world to know we were real. So I was crying out. I thought the, the manifest presence of God, the miraculous, would be a great way to build a church. Be like, people will find out you're doing stuff and they'll want to come. And at that moment, something shifted and changed in me, and I realized that the presence of God wasn't about growing a church. The presence of God wasn't about proving that we were his. The presence of God was actually his desire to put on his church. 
And if you study the history of the church throughout scripture, we will find something. And it's what I want to do this morning. I want to take a look at a couple questions, one statement and a question. Moving into this teaching, there's a premise. How many have have been in in a college class where the teachers will kind of share, you know, they're going to come in and tell you what the premise of the class is, what the belief set is that they're moving forward on. Here's the belief set that I want to share with us this morning. His glory expressed on his people is actually his idea. His glory expressed on his people is actually his idea. That if we study the scriptures, all through the scriptures, what we see, not not charismatic, just the, the people of God, that there's a desire in the heart of God for his presence to be found on his people. To be known and tangible, I don't mean like the mental side of it, I mean stuff's happening in the room, his glory's being revealed. That is not a common idea in our day and age. It freaks some people out. If we study Israel's history, we'll find out the presence of God freaked them out so much that they will say to Moses, you go talk to him for us, he kind of scares us. I don't want us to be those people because I don't think we can be that group of people and have him do what he wants in our day and in our time. So the question I want to answer from this premise is, if it's his idea for his glory to be upon his people, is there a biblical model or behavioral pattern that we can walk in to partner with that desire? We good? We all know the boundaries we're running in? All right, let's roll. For this premise that the glory is his idea, I want to start in Genesis with Adam. Chapter 2, it says, the Lord God placed man in the Garden of Eden to tend and care for it. I want us to notice the emphasis of who's doing this. God did the action. He placed man into the garden. I think it's safe to say there was a reason behind God's decision. A perfect deity divine in his nature, isn't going to haphazardly or randomly do things without cause. So the question has to be, why? Why did God put man in the garden? Now, some of us will say, hey, it's right there. It says to tend it and care for it. Yes, that was the task. But that doesn't answer the why was he there. Because he could have done that anywhere. Genesis 3.8 says, towards the evening they heard the Lord walking about in the garden, so they hid themselves. This is talking about Adam and Eve. She's now in the scene. They hid themselves among the trees. And the Lord God called to Adam, where are you? So if we look at the language, something comes out. God comes into the garden. Some of your Bibles will say in the cool of the evening, or so we, we get the idea that it was a daily habit. There was something that had been going on habitually. And he calls for them. The fact that he calls for them is indicative of one who's expecting to find somebody else. How many have ever come home, walked in the back door, and yelled, anybody home? You don't do that if you live alone. (laughs) You only do that if you expect someone to answer. Or in the days of Xbox One, they have their headphones on playing Fortnite, they're never going to answer. So it's indicative of the fact that God had an expectation that somebody was there. The question, where are you, in the narrative, Hebrew being a narrative-based language, which means it has feel, it has, it has emotion written into the text, is actually a question that leans into the idea of, where are you, because you're not where I expected you to be. What does that tell us? I think it tells us what the purpose of the garden was. The garden was a place where God wanted to encounter Adam and Eve. He wanted them to be able to share life together and experience each other. 
Let's move on to Enoch. Some of your Bibles, in, in the King James, if you have a King James Bible, it'll say Enoch walked with God and he was no more. In the New Living, it says Enoch enjoyed a close relationship with God throughout his life. Then suddenly he disappeared because God took him. Very interesting passage. And I think there's some things we can learn from this. This phrase, walked with God, just means to live in a habitual pattern. It means Enoch had a regular, everyday pattern of hanging out with God. So God and him had established a relational encounter, one that was so significant that it actually led God to pull Enoch closer to him. You say, what do you mean? The idea of being pulled up, if we look at the language and the narrative, it kind of goes like this. It's God speaking, saying, I can't take it anymore. I can't stand this space-time continuum, this distance between us. I just need you with me. And he pulls him to the other side. Now, I know that's in, most of us are like, wait, time out. I don't want that, actually. I like my life, which is fair. But I want us to see something that this reveals. We recognize that God doesn't just have a desire to be with man, which we see in the garden, that there's actually an appetite in God for relationship and closeness with those he befriends. There's a hunger in him towards us. It's not just us towards him. Now, if we go to Moses in Exodus 3, maybe you're familiar with the story, Moses will come upon a burning bush. That doesn't seem abnormal. We've seen fires before, but this one wasn't being consumed. So there's no carbon. It's not going up in flames. It's just on fire. That catches Moses as maybe abnormal, so he stops, and in that encounter realizes that it's God and God and him have a dialogue and out of that dialogue God says to him I want you to go back to Egypt where my people are captive and I want you to lead them out Moses begins to argue now I don't know about you but if I come across a burning bush that's not going up in flames and and God speaks to me out of it my first response is probably not to argue (laughs) Moses argues and his statement is is unto this They're not going to believe I actually saw you. They're going to think I'm crazy. So who are you going to send with me to prove that I met you? And we see something in verse 12 that's incredible. God's answer to that when he speaks to Moses is he says, here's the deal. I, Yahweh, myself, am going to go with you. Now, we could read past that, and we do. We glass past that like, yep, God's going with him. Because in our mind, we instantly think, oh, what that means is God's going to be like, I'm really for you, buddy. No, what he says is, I'm actually going with you. I'll be alongside of you in this journey. I'll walk next to you. He's not talking about an ideal or an existential, ethereal thing. He's talking about right here in the now, I'll actually be next to you. And so what we understand in this is that God shows us in the scripture, he has a desire to move past basic visitation and move to a place where he actually dwells with man, that he's with us. All these are individual stories. Adam, Enoch, Moses, 1v1 encounters. And it's so easy for us in Western civilization to identify with the individual side of it. But really, if we're gonna talk about the glory of God on the church, we have to talk about the moments where God begins to establish it with his people. So after God asks Moses to lead the people of Israel, he tells them why. He says, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go so they can come worship me, which is our first clue of what he's after. And I think it's key for us to realize that. He was after the opportunity for them to come be with him in an exchange. If we move on to Exodus 25, the Lord says to Moses, tell the people of Israel that everyone who wants to may bring me an offering. Here's a list of what you can accept on my behalf. Gold, silver, and bronze. 
I want the people of Israel to build me a sacred residence where I can live among them. You must make this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the plans I will show you. What we see here very clearly is God expressing something. He actually wants to tabernacle, to dwell, to make us a place for him to live. It's different than the idea of encountering us and engaging us. It means I want to live among them, with them all the time. Now push pause on that. I want to drop in an idea. It has nothing to do with this, but it kind of does. You must make this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the plans I will show you. If we cross-reference to 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6 will say this, do you not understand your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Don't defile it. Now, if God will say to Moses, I'm going to give you a tabernacle to build, the tabernacle representative of the place I will live, and you must make it exactly like I tell you to make it. Do not deviate in any way, shape, or form from the plan I give you. Your responsibility is to build this thing, architect this thing, precise. How many would see that in that statement? Really? Only two of us? And then if we take that and we jump into the New Testament, the 1 Corinthians 6 moment, what we realize, how could we ever assume that Moses was held to a standard of exactness in building the temple and we're going to be allowed to not be held to a standard of exactness in this temple? Just a thought. Now there's another aspect in Exodus 33 in working towards this. It's God's desire for his presence to be with his people. It's negative, so it's an odd thing. But I will not travel along with you, for you are a stubborn, unruly people. If I did, I would be tempted to destroy you along the way. How many have ever felt like that towards your kids? <laughs> Think about this statement. I can't get in the car with you because I'm going to want to kill you before it's over. Even though it's negative and it's funny, what it really reveals is the actual desire of God. What he's saying in this is, I do want to be with you. I do want to go where you go. I want to be on this journey with you in life, but there's something in your behavior that's limiting me from being able to be with you. That's an idea we're going to come back to in a couple weeks. And then the last one is in verse 7 in Exodus 33. It was Moses' custom to set up the tent of meeting far outside the camp. Everyone who wanted to consult with the Lord would go there. It's this phrase, everyone who wanted to consult with the Lord. It's so important for us. But before we look at that, I want to ask the question, why did Moses set up the tent of meeting? Because God told him to. What did we learn from that? That it was God's idea to set up a place for us to encounter him regularly. It was in his heart first. He set the rules in order. He gave Moses the commandments because he deeply longed for there to be a place where we could access him whenever we wanted. Now here comes the question. Everyone who wanted to consult with the Lord would go there. If we consider this everyone who wanted phrase, it really means exactly what it says. It means that in this continuum of encountering the presence of God, we have been left in charge of our appetite. That God being gentle is never going to invade a culture and say, you're going to have me right now. I'm going to be here. I'm coming on top of you. I'm going to pour out my spirit. No, the Lord instead has set this thing to where it's actually fueled by my appetite, by my desire, by my hunger for him. 
And I want to say to us today, everyone who wanted to consult with the Lord would go there is still a relevant phrase. That for us, we can still access the presence of God based on our desire and our appetite. It's just up to us to want it. So if we look at this premise, God wants to pour out his presence, wants his glory to be known on his people. It brings me to the question, then is there a biblical pattern and model that we have to walk in? And I think we're going to look at three of them. We're going to look at one this morning. In the scriptures, there's there's a position in the kingdom called the watchman. If you study the watchman, the watchman was a, a a functional position in their culture. They would set up on the wall and they were to look out into the horizon and see if there was danger coming. And what it is for us is a picture of prayer. It's a picture of one who will put their eyes long range and begin to interface and, and engage with, with something outside of just their here and now. In Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses kind of launches this thing. He's the first one that we really see pray this very specific prayer. He looks at the Lord and says, show me your glory. This word show me here reveals a personal cry. And I would say the first half of this cry of a watchman, it's our behavior pattern. It's the one of the, one of the big three that we're going to move into. It, it's to become people that will begin to cry out for the glory of God. This, the, this show me phrase is, is the proprietary side of it. It's got to become the heart cry of every believer. Now, I think it's interesting that God chooses Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. What's interesting for me is that I think that there's something connected to the fact that this heart cry was in Moses, and because Moses was so consumed with wanting to experience God, God could give him a giant task because God knew that Moses was never going to be, his identity was never going to be informed by what he was doing because his his identity was being informed by who he was encountering. And see, all too often, our identity is informed by what we do in life and the places we go and the things we've accomplished and the heart cry of Moses that has to become the heart cry of the church here is it's your glory that's gonna define me. Please show me your glory. I wanna encounter you face to face and then you can use me to do whatever you want. The other thing I see here that's important for us is by Moses praying, show me your glory, he gives us a clue that it's actually illegal and right for us to cry out to experience the presence of God. It's not a weak-minded, charismatic pursuit. It's actually a biblical pursuit that we are to be people that cry out, I want to know you. I want to encounter you. I want you to make heaven real to me. I want you to express yourself so knowable to me that there's no doubt. How many, if you're just really honest, would say, I I do, I want the presence of God like never before? Isaiah 62 reveals what I would call the, the family aspect of this. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. This is Isaiah speaking. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like the brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory and you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. This phrase, I will not keep silent, I will not be quiet. It's the heart cry of the church for the church. 
we begin to cry out. And I think the only way that heart cry happens is if we come face to face with a truth. The single greatest need we have is the presence of God in our day and in our time. That there must become an identifiable, supernatural weight of presence when we gather so that the world will understand we are his gem. It isn't our systems and our programs. It's, it's not even how good a people we are. There is, is always has been intended to be from the beginning the supernatural weight of God's presence on his people and that was always to be the thing that defined them. Just let you think on that. It's kind of quiet. And in this way, church, we have a personal cry. I want to see your glory but we begin to pick up a family cry as intercessors. Here's the thing about intercession and prayer. It's about the willingness to do it, not the want to. It's an obedience moment to say, I'm gonna begin to stand in my place and cry out for your church to become who you've called her to be. I'm gonna believe for your glory to rest on your people. Jesus has a regular, systematic prayer life. He gets away all the time, pulls alone to pray. We see that in the New Testament. It's impossible to miss. His disciples come to him and they say, Lord, will you please teach us how to pray? So he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. I just want to focus on the very end of it, that what he invites them to pray at the very end of it is important for us. The last thing that he leaves on their mind for them to remember was to, in, was to ask intentionally of heaven, that it invades earth. That's what I'm talking about, is heaven invading earth. Jesus tells his disciples, pray this way. I want you to be regularly praying on earth as it is in heaven. Where I live, I want it to look like where you live. That's all the glory of the Lord is. It's where his supernatural authority and weight rests so heavily on us that people begin to walk in and say, oh man, there is something different. He is here. I can see him. I can feel him. If we go into the Old Testament and we look at all the different manifestations, there are things like a cloud of glory that will billow into a room when they start worshiping and the Lord's revealing his presence. So much so, it's my favorite picture in scripture. It's so much so that, that worship stops and they all hit the floor and they just lay before the presence of God because when he enters a room, we have found our purpose. Our entire identity settles because we're just his and we're in with him. And I want us to carry that in our hearts as a passion to say our number one agenda in life is to be his people where his presence rests on us. And so we're going to spend a few weeks looking at the biblical patterns that we can appropriate to protect that. My only question for us is will we be the people that live these patterns? This first one. Will we be the people that will say, I will begin to cry out for his glory personally. I will begin to cry out for his glory in the church. Let's stand this morning.